Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Shakespeare and Company. It becomes clear within just a few pages of A History of Women 101 Objects that not only is Annabel Hirsch giving us an untold and innovative history of the world, a history that takes us from the dawn of civilization to the present day, through ancient Egypt, medieval Venice, revolutionary France, and the roaring 20s, but she is also launching an interrogation into the practice and purpose of history itself, how and why it's told, who gets to tell it, and what gets cast into the shadows along the way, sometimes by accident and most often on purpose. Her focus on the objects that shaped women and the objects that women shaped, some of them every day, some of them trailblazing, many of them both at once, is not only a much-needed break from the unending lists of apparently important dates and bloody battles that most of us plough through at school, not only rewires the way we think about the past, but also, crucially, makes us see the world around us today with fresh eyes. A History of Women and 101 Objects has been a favourite with our booksellers from the day it was published, so we're delighted that Annabelle Hirsch is here with us tonight. Please join me in welcoming her to Shakespeare and Company. Um, I'd like to begin where you began with um, the idea. In the introduction, you give a little bit of a kind of origin story um, for, for this book. When you were um, visiting the childhood home of um, the novelist Karen Blixen, mm -hmm. I was wondering, first of all, if you might share that with, uh, with the audience. Yes. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for being here. I'm super happy to be here. Um, well, I have to be honest, this is a bit kind of um, uh, faire la légende, no? So it's it's not exactly how it happened, but let's say this is how I tell it, so <laughs> I will tell it like that. Um, so I went um, to the house of Karen Blixen in Denmark, which is uh, lovely on the coast. And... Uh, in this house, you can see her desk, you can see the um, very pretty paintings she did, actually, um, on the walls. And um, I realized that what kind of interested me the most there was not so much all those things that would be more obvious, I think, because they're related to what she writes about, um, but was that in the kitchen you had, I think, like 70 pots. Mm -hmm. So really, like, a lot of pots. Um, cooking pots, um, which I found very surprising. And so I started to think, because as you might know, Karen Blixen was extremely thin. Um, I don't think someone who enjoyed um, eating so much, or she didn't look like it at least. Um, and so I was I was wondering if she used it, if someone cooked for her, if, you know, what, what those objects of the everyday life would say about her as a woman, about her as a writer, about her a woman of her class at that time. And so I realized that objects like pots or all the other objects I talk about um, are kind of a good way to, um, well, to get into the intimate space of someone and that they can also tell a lot not only about one particular person but also about the time in which they lived in the t about the time in which they were invented and used. So um, I realized that objects are very good. They they give you the chance to go in and out, you know, to go from the very intimate to the political, and to make this movement to be very flexible. So to tell women's stories, it's very interesting also because the intimate space was kind of the only space where women had something to say mm -hmm. for a very long time. So. More or less, that's yeah. it. <laughs> One thing that's immediately striking, at least that struck me with the title, is <coughs> the use of the, the indefinite article. So a history of women yes. in 101 Objects. And you're very clear in the introduction that this is, in a sense, kind of a, a personal history. You followed your nose to an extent with what sort of interested you and obviously was very um, sort of culturally dependent as well as a, yeah. as a, as a Western European woman. Um, but it also struck me that I don't know. I have the feeling that when men, at least in the past, wrote history books, they would call them things like civilization or <laughs> the history of the world. Yeah. And it was the idea that it'd be kind of definitive and sort of to give you a story which would set something in stone. And one thing we, read, we get the feeling when reading the introduction and as we go through the objects is that it feels like rather than, you're, than trying to define the history, you're kind of opening up a space for for multiple histories and mm. kind of further exploration. Yeah, but that's totally it. I mean, then I would not generalize and say that every man would say it's the history, but probably this is more like something mm. that would be male. Um, and I think, well, I mean, then for one, if you tell 
a history or this history um, through objects, it has to be personal because it's not like there there's the object that would say something because you make them say or I'm, I make them say in a way what I want to see in there, but I think that this makes it interesting actually. Um, and then also, I mean, there's a good thing or there's something good about the fact that female history is not so uh, well uh, told is that you can tell many stories. Mm -hmm. And so you can open up to many different points of view. And I think this is what makes it interesting to you to, to, to see different shades, to get different, um, well, takes on it. And this is a very personal take. I'm wondering, is the, um, uh, Neil McGregor, is it a history or is it the history? Off the top of my head, I, I, don't, I can't tell you. I, I'm thinking of, um, I, I was thinking of E.H. Gombrich and I think that is the history of art. Um, yeah, it is. yeah, yeah, but um, but yeah, maybe I'm an unfair generalization. <laughs> I could think of people like John Berger, for example, who um, yeah. would always take a very sort of open. No, but it's. I think it's very, um, and it is super personal because it's. Um, for one, I think if someone that would be only French or only German or mm -hmm. only English would have told a totally different story, uh -huh. so you can sense that I was born in Germany but raised a lot in France that I, I mean you can sense I mm. think my different cultural background sure. or something yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also and that's also what I say in the introduction I mean the idea is not to tell the story because it also I mean who can uh -huh. it sounds to me that sounds ridiculous actually to pretend <laughs> you could so a lot of men have thought they could <laughs> yeah but it's ridiculous come on I mean we yeah. don't know anything so you can you can give a take on something mm -hmm. but you cannot say this is how it is because we have no idea and it's always changing i mean this is one point and tomorrow mm -hmm. probably we will find out that everything is uh, wrong you know yeah. so um so i think it's interesting to open up and also to encourage other people to try to f tell their stories mm -hmm. you know and so once <coughs> you had the idea i'm fascinated by how you then collated collected the objects did you sort of was it something that sort of came came really quickly and suddenly there was kind of inspiration all over the place and you saw all of these things or was it a much or did you really have to go looking for the sort of specific objects to tell the story you wanted to tell mm, well when i started i when i started to talk to people about it um everyone was like ah so you have to put in ah. there the bra and the tampon and you know like stuff i was like no obviously i'm not gonna <laughs> put that in there that's like very boring and that sound doesn't sound good um so i had think but there are things i did put in there because people told me about for example the bikini which mm -hmm. i think i wouldn't have mm -hmm. wouldn't have made it in there but um but actually once i started it's a bit you know when you open up something suddenly the whole wall cracked and i mm -hmm. had like thousands of things pouring towards me so um but yeah i had to look for it i had mm -hmm. to because i wanted to well for one i wanted it to be chronological mm -hmm. so that you have the feeling that it's kind of you know like a walk mm -hmm. through history that's how i felt it is i hope you felt the same Very much so. um and and then i had topics i wanted to have like i don't know public space sexuality writing mm -hmm. power obviously um so kind of when I intersected these ideas, the objects came. Mm -hmm. And then they started to come really to me. So I could have done 200. Uh -huh. Actually, <laughs> I, I tried to uh, convince my editor to do. I was like, ah, but maybe it would be very original to do like, I don't know, a story in 150 objects, uh -huh. right? <laughs> she was like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. Well, well maybe you could do a second history of women yeah, and another I think 101 objects. <laughs> no, someone else should. Uh -huh. And so let's talk about, we're obviously not going to have time to go through all of the 101 objects in the book, um, but we're going to dip into certain ones. So let's begin with just, I guess, the, the start point and the end point uh, for now. So, so you begin with a healed femur uh, bone from, um, well, for prehistory dating back, what, 20, well, 30, we, we said 30,000, but it's a bit approximate. Uh, 30,000 yeah. years. And then you finish with a bunch of hair from the Iranian protests from 2022. Um, so I suppose <coughs> in, in one sense, 2022 was the year you were writing, the year you were publishing, so you could bring it right up. But what made you start with the, the healed femur? Well, I mean, as you might know, um, it's very difficult to find the starting <laughs> point. So, um, yeah, so I was really 
thinking, I think this is the thing that took me the, the longest, actually, to find where, where should I start, because if I start with a bowl or something, maybe that would be boring. But So, um, no, and I found this story that is probably super well-known in the U.S. and maybe in the U.K., but that I didn't know I didn't about, know actually. So there's this story. Uh, Margaret Mead, who's a very famous anthropologist, um, in the 60s was in the U.S. in a university, and she got asked what, um, in her opinion, would be an object that could represent the beginning of our society, uh, about our, of our civilization. And so... I don't know what this person was expecting, but let's say probably not a healed female. Um, and so um, we think that probably he thought, I don't know, an arm or something that man invented. And she said it's a healed femur, and her explanation was that uh, an animal would never survive if it breaks something. Uh, and the fact that a human had survived, obviously, because we found this healed femur, um, showed that someone was there to care for him or for her. And so her idea is that what makes our civilization so strong, and if you want to say that superior maybe to others, is not that we are doing wars, it's not, it not that we're conquesting and all that stuff, that we tend to you know, make the leading thing of our history, but is the fact that we care for others. Um, and so she says, be civilized, you know, take care of each other. And so I really, I really like this idea to, I mean, it was a way to, this is how I want to tell this story, right? To say that maybe uh, all the things that we tend to see as the most important, like who was the most powerful, who did the most extraordinary things, maybe that's a very stupid way to, oh, maybe not, that's not the only way, let's say. Yeah. So maybe we can also tell the story by saying, um, yeah, by, by all those things that we tend to see as very unimportant, very negligible, mm. um, like taking care, like being tender, like, you know, all those things that yeah. we kind of look at and are like, yeah, well, mm -hmm. who cares? And with the um, the final object, I can only imagine this book was, you know, the, the, the result mm -hmm. of several years of work. So you were... You kind of write must have been writing up to the um, up to the publication date, and it's you know the the I mean the protests in Iran are still ongoing, even though they're yeah. not talked about in our news as much as as, yeah. as they were. But um, was there um, wh when you were writing when when w did you have a kind of a previous endpoint that you thought I mean object number one hundred is the pussy hat for example. Yes. Was there sort of did you have that in mind as a, f a finishing point and then? this sort of this um, very powerful symbol from Iran presented itself? Yes, because the original one, which is German, uh, is in 100 objects. Mm. Okay. So ah. that's actually a, that's a British thing. Yeah, okay. So yeah. We, we get one extra. Extra, yeah. <laughs> um, no, so, um, so when I finished the German one, which was in, well, also in 22, but in March or something, um, the finishing point was the pussy head, which I personally find extremely ugly i really hate this object but then it's very you know i mean it tells a lot then you can find it also in museums everywhere so it's a very powerful object and I, I i felt like it's really it really represents this turn that we had in 2017 with trump with the march in washington which um with me too with i think that was a moment and to me it felt like this was a, actually and i was finishing it in 22 but to me, it felt like this was the last moment in at this moment um, where something really, you know, re revolutionary in a way happened and also where um, it was not an end point, actually, that it was more like this all happened, Me Too happened, mm -hmm. but we don't know what it's going to bring. It's still an open thing. Yeah. And then when the um, when Canongate bought the book, there actually was thing going on in Iran and so I felt like um, now this is a new new revolution so we cannot not put that in there and also what I really like about it because I I mean that's also why it's a history because obviously I'm white living between Germany and France and Italy so it's kind of a very European story because I felt like um, I want to tell something that that I can really relate to that. I, it's, it's very personal. It's a very personal take. So what I liked about the fact to bring Iran in is that in a way I didn't really feel like legitimate. I don't know if that's the right word, but let's say that. 
um, to tell this story, but then also what I like is that it opens up to another cultural area mm -hmm. that I wouldn't talk about more, but that someone else should. Mm -hmm. And also that it's, I think that it's the, the, the last thing where really something happened, where we also don't know where it's gonna uh -huh. take us or take them, but that will change something for sure. Yeah. I yeah, think, yeah. right? So, in the um, in the introduction, you um, you show that you talk about like the the, the book as a cabinet <coughs> of curiosities, um, and you say that it shows how rich and diverse, how complex and non-linear the history of all women is, and that idea of non-linearity really struck me while reading the book, because I think, probably rather stupidly and rather ignorantly, I kind of assumed that the sort of the the fight for for women's liberation began probably the sort of you know, 19th century and like before then was just a kind of a wasteland of kind of op oppression of women by, by men. But one thing your book shows, which is perhaps even more depressing to an extent, is that there are moments of great advances and liberation for women in, throughout history, which then sort of got retracted. Yeah. So, for example, in the, the, well, maybe you could talk a little bit about the picture you paint of the, the Middle Ages, which is really yeah. surprising, I think. It is, right? Um, uh, well, I'm very happy that you say that because that, that was something that I found very important in a way, right? Because we have this, yeah, in a way, not for you, but for us all, because I also thought that in a way, um, stupid idea that we have a very linear progression from total submission to our so-called emancipation, which is also questionable, I would say. But um, in fact, there were always like, you know, mm. waves that, um, yeah, and for example, the Middle Ages are so interesting and like really fascinating. And I mean, then the late Middle Ages, that's where they have a backlash, but in the middle Middle Ages, um, women had actually a lot of rights and things were going <coughs> much better for them. And they were, they were working, for example. I mean, women were everywhere. They were they were um, médecins, they were, uh, they were in every, every kind of um, category uh, of work. Um, and, um, and so also, for example, we always tend to think that uh, the witch hunts, that this was the Middle Ages, was totally untrue. That's the beginning of uh, modern age. Mm -hmm. mm, so, yeah, the Middle Ages, some, for some reason, I don't know, have a very bad press yeah yeah yeah. Uh, but because you had a lot of of, of amazing things mm -hmm. going on but so but it's very interesting and i find it i mean in a way it's depressing but then it's also fascinating that you always have those backlashes yeah 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 yeah. and i think very informative for our world today as well so yeah. this idea that you know these things which we perhaps take for granted that we've acquired are not necessarily acquired into the future and I guess what's happening in the in the US with abortion rights at the moment Absolutely. is I mean, sort of a exactly good sign of that thing. too. Yeah. No, and you can also feel I, I would say that today you can really feel that there's a thirst for a backlash that is <laughs> extremely strong and very frightening also because those backlashes were always very mean. They were not a tender thing. Huh? Uh -huh. So yeah. It it was fascinating for me to see also um certain objects which perhaps um one sort of associated just sort of falling out of um, a fashion for, for for reasons which seemed unclear. So I mean, one of the <laughs> one of the objects you write about is the the bidet, for example. Yeah. And it's something which, um, as you say, like if you're younger than a certain age and haven't lived in certain countries, it might be a very still very mysterious object you find occasionally in hotel rooms or kind of older bathrooms. Um, whereas in fact, this the way you write about it in the book, this this seemed to be sort of like something which was only quite revolutionary for, for women at the time that it came in and over certain generations. But also one of the reasons it was removed Bend, was yeah. to to sort of to, to, to remove the, the freedom that it gave those women. Yeah, it's very interesting how the video was very um, uh, linked to female sexuality because it was used as a kind of contraceptive, which was obviously probably not working mm. very well. But so it was very... Um, it was very common um, in the 18th century um, and with this very short period of a libertinage culture. Um, and, and so it was very linked to this. And then when this ended in the very dark 19th century, which is probably the worst century mm. ever for women, really, which mm. we don't say enough, I think, 
um, it started to be something that was very much linked to prostitution, to uh, femme de petite vertu, or how you would say. Um, and, and that is why at the end of the 19th century, for example, in the US, it was totally banned. It was took, uh, taken out of all the hotels and all the, pl all the places um, so much that that's how I end this story. Mm. And I found it super fun because um, a w an American woman that came to Paris and went to a hotel and found this bidet uh, was very surprised by this very little weird thing that was in this bathroom. And so she asked the woman, ah, is this to wash the babies in? And so <laughs> the woman said, no, madam, this is to wash the babies out. <laughs> 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 and so, no, but there are very funny stories about the bidet, another one, that I really like because now I live in Italy, and in Italy, actually, you find them everywhere. Mm. But back then... Um, someone from the Cour de France um, brought it to Italy as a gift for a lady. And she didn't know this, mm. obviously. And um, she used it <laughs> on, like a few days later on a party to put the fish mm -hmm. in. So it was for her, it was kind of like a plate. <laughs> <laughs> so the guy who gave it to her was um, very surprised, mm. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> as you said, there's quite a lot of objects which are sort of very... Um, very everyday, which would have been sort of very present and, and used quite a lot. But there are also a lot, uh, several objects which you use to, I guess, symbolize um, important figures mm -hmm. in, um, in women's emancipation, whether that be the, um, the statue of, um, or the, uh, the, the face of uh, Giacometti's face of Simone de Beauvoir, I think. Yes. Um, or um, the ladies of Langolon. Uh, figurine. Yeah. I'm not yeah, sure cool. how I'm getting the Welsh pronunciation right or not. But, Langolon, I think. Um, well, I'm just curious, before we talk about a few of them, were there any figures from the the, uh, the struggle for women's emancipation that you wanted to include, but you couldn't find an oh. object that, uh, I guess, sufficiently represented them? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I don't think so. I mean, for example, I have to say, Simone de Beauvoir, I really, I was kind of struggling with it because... Mm. I felt if, if I put in there a pen or something, uh. that would be extremely boring, <laughs> right? So, no, but really. So, or I, for example, for um, uh, Georges Sand, which mm -hmm. to me had to be in there, obviously, um, she almost was in there with a pen, but then I felt like this is not really good, and I'm really happy now she's in there with, um, uh, how do you say that? Uh, her right arm. I mean, yeah. not her well. real arm, but, you know, like... Uh, I don't know how you would say that, um, uh, in plastique. Yep. Um, and I really like it because it's, um, I, I, I think it makes sense for her, for example, because in the 19th century, she was so well known, um, not only for her writing, and there was like Georges Sandisme, right? It was like really a, a thing, a trend. Um, but so, which is good with this arm, I think, much more than if I would have taken a pen, is that she was not only known for her writing, but she was also known for how she lived, how mm -hmm. she was, you know, embodied, kind of how she how she lived, for example, in, in, in the city. She was one of the first women in Paris to wear pants. Um, she was one of the first women who got um, divorced. Um, so she was really admired for the way she lived, probably even more than mm -hmm. for the way she wrote. And so I think that this arm kind of expresses this. Mm -hmm. uh, and for Simone de Beauvoir, I also like the, the little head that Giacometti made of her. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I was struggling to find something that would not be too... Because it cannot be too easy, uh -huh. otherwise it's not so interesting. Right? Yeah. On the subject of Georges Sand, I was talking to somebody, uh, a French person recently, and she was saying that she had found that Georges Sand generally among uh, French people in the moment, it's considered quite old, quite stuffy, like people don't, yeah. whereas I think among English readers uh, who are aware of her, there's definitely kind of an, an excitement around her. They recognize her kind of revolutionary um, yeah, potential, but, but for some reason in France. No, but Georges Sand is, that's also what I write in there, is that I think she's a bit judged somehow mm -hmm. for the fact that she was not only, she was not like Colette, who was mm -hmm. kind of, really a crazy person on uh. so many levels, right? In a very cool way. <laughs> I mean, I, I love Colette, but like until the end, she yeah. kind of never stopped. And Georges Sand, she also loved to be at home and to cook marmalade. Mm -hmm. And I think she kind of got, sh yeah, she's like this uh, old lady of Nouan. I think mm -hmm. that's how they call it in France. 
uh, she was very judged for also be being very domestic, uh -huh. I think. So, but this is also a thing that is problematic, that women are supposed to be, when they're free, they're supposed to be free all the way, all mm -hmm. the time, uh, and never w wanting to cook or mm -hmm. to have something. It, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, Nobody's yeah. like that. Yeah, Everyone needs to be home sometimes. It feels almost like another role being imposed yeah. on women. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. I think that Georges Sand is kind of, I think it changes uh -huh. also in France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Just staying with France, because you mentioned Colette, um, and you, you said earlier that obviously you said you felt your 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 Frenchness and your Germanness showed through in the book. And I'd say the Frenchness specifically, like there's there yeah, definitely did feel to be a kind of a preponderance of objects connected to to France um, throughout throughout the centuries. And I'm curious, do you think that is just the fact that you're sort of tuned into it? Because it felt to me that so many of these things were so iconic and so important that maybe France has played in certain ways an outsized role yeah. in um, in sort of shaping women's history and women's emancipation. Yeah, I was actually I was also asking myself, but but um, no, I think that if you compare it, for example, to Germany, it's obvious that mm -hmm. France played a bigger role mm -hmm. in in emancipation and England too, mm -hmm. actually. So France and England were for uh, at least if you go from the 19th century for the, the women's rights, they were more important mm -hmm. than, for example, Germany or even Italy. Although Italy is kind of um, more in there, I think, because many people, many things started mm -hmm. in Italy, if you think of the Renaissance and stuff. But um, no, France was definitely a place where mm -hmm. things happened, yeah. like on, on many levels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So also on this level. Yeah, it's... Um, is, would it be cheeky of me to ask you to speculate why, for example, com France compared to Germany? Why you think it's something... Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I would say that... Um, no, I was also searching for it. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, there's something in, in Germany that always... I have some German friends here, so maybe they can <laughs> tell. But no, I was always um, wondering. Now it's changing a bit. But in Germany, for example, if you're looking for um, figures, like literary figures mm -hmm. that would inspire you, who are, who are you looking for? I don't mm. still today. I don't know. So you, everyone in Germany has also uh, as as an idea like Simone de Beauvoir or maybe even Colette. And so it's very it's very difficult um, to. They are like Rosa Luxemburg. Or, I mm. mean, there are figures obviously, but still, there's something um, more more hidden. I think maybe that changes today, but I couldn't say why. That yeah. would be a good question too. And yet, oddly, in France today, we find. Um, I get, I'm, I'm thinking of certain kind of reactions to things like the Me Too movement or recently with the um, with uh, Gérard Depardieu. There does seem to be, compared certainly to the UK and the US, a certain sort of conservatism mm. uh, around issues of women's emancipation too. Absolutely, but then you have them. For example, I was wondering when, when this stuff with uh, Gérard Depardieu came up, I wrote about it for uh, the German newspaper mm. I write about for. Um, and... I mean, even if, of course, in France, I would say that today probably in France, the position of women is more conservative than in Germany in some ways. But then still, at least you have that here. Mm. Because in Germany, I don't know what the Me Too was. There was no Me Too right, okay. for nothing. And I'm sure that German men are the same. Mm -hmm. So it's... Um, uh, it's interesting. But then this, yeah, this question I got asked a lot when in Germany and, and then in England also, mm -hmm. um, how I would like describe, you know, like between Germany and France, how the position of women is. And I think it's very, it's very difficult to catch it, right? Because mm -hmm. on some levels, I feel like German women are so much freer. Uh -huh. um, but, but then on others also, and not uh -huh. at all. So I mean, it's very complicated yeah, to, to yeah, yeah. grab it. One one other level of kind of complication, um, which I found fascinating in the book, is like whether certain objects could be defined as objects of emancipation or objects of oppression. Yeah. So, for example, you mentioned the the bikini earlier, <laughs> yeah. um, and there are other things like um, the the metal corset, for example. Now, I think that was sort of something when I when I saw that on on the page, I just thought, okay, this is going to be a few pages about how kind of men forced women into into these clothes and you know how damaging they were and how sort of um how it was great when they finally disappeared but yeah. when you go into the story it's actually a bit more complex than that 
Yeah, but that's also what is nice is that we have this idea for some objects and mm-hmm. of course the corset is the most iconic in a way that they have one meaning that is mm-hmm. kind of defined forever. Mm-hmm. And actually with the corset, that's totally, maybe not totally untrue, but it's kind of untrue, that at the beginning in Watch it was much more to um, underline, you know, the, the, the sup- superiority mm-hmm. um, of uh, the women of the noblesse. So it was something that made them really look strong, look bigger, look, you know, like bold also. Um, also, the fact that it was made by the same guys that were doing armors for men mm-hmm. was kind of a thing because mm-hmm. women were obviously not allowed to wear an armor. Mm. So at the beginning for the women, it was much more to make them feel strong and to make them look strong. So it was not at all f- mm-hmm. to oppress them. And actually those who found this a bit questionable were men because mm-hmm. they were afraid of those women that were suddenly so looking so strong. And they were kind of inventing this narrative that women are, which I found very interesting, that women are so stupid uh, that they are such fashion victims, Mm -hmm. that's I think Mm -hmm. how this word actually exists, um, that they would die um, to you know, look cool, to Mm -hmm. be fashionable. And so this is very uh, misogyne in a way to uh, think that way. Um, and so for a long time, um, it wasn't so much about oppression, but more about being um, superior. Then in the 19th century, and this is where we got this idea from, it was total mm-hmm. super oppression, obviously, because those were much, they had another form than the others. They were much tighter, I think, mm-hmm. so they could really not breathe, not move, like all the stuff that women, well, women in the 19th century were supposed to just sit somewhere and mm-hmm. be quiet, right? And so this was very working for it. Um, but that's where we get this idea from. But 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 it's very interesting that some objects, yeah, show you how um, how things are much more movable mm-hmm. and much more dynamic than we tend to think, and that's also what makes them interesting. Mm-hmm. I think. Was there any object that sort of flipped your view of the object? Like you went in expecting it to be a symbol of emancipation, and then you found oppression in it, or vice versa. Um. No, I think the Cosse was really one mm. that, that I found surprising. Then, I mean, you also have the lipstick, which mm. I kind of find it fun. I, I nev- never thought about it in that way. That um, uh, at the beginning, it was really linked to the suffragette movement. Mm. And that also men were, um, I think they were afraid of it because it, you know, it underlined this mouth this place where suddenly all those demands and Mm -hmm. all those you know uh came out (laughs) so there was something that they were very shocked about and also because it told them so there was this march in new york which is very famous in 1912 i think where elizabeth arden went out and gave to all the suffragettes the lipstick and so suddenly they were all walking around with this red lips Mm -hmm. and at that time, that was something that was kind of bold because women with red lips were prostitutes. Mm-hmm. So this was a way of telling men, well, we don't give a shit. I mean, mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't care what you think. If you think we are prostitutes or we are whatever, we want to look like this. We want to be loud. We're mm-hmm. going to, you know, we're going to uh, ask for things. Um, so, and then this flipped, for example, mm-hmm. I think, because my grandmother was would never have made like one foot out of her house without a lipstick but i don't think that with this was very bold of her ah. i think this was a kind of an you know very housewifey thing mm-hmm. so so yeah so it, it always it. flips the one that um i suppose surprised me not that you necessarily give it a kind of a a sort of voracious defense but that i was surprised about um let's say it wasn't completely unredeemable was you include the vhs tape of mm. deep throat the yeah. uh the porno film from the was the late seventies or no maybe a bit earlier, um, yeah seventies and uh, yeah well maybe maybe I'll <laughs> let you explain why that sort of why you just chose to include that and why it was perhaps surprising in a way. Um, what, this uh, what was very surprising. I don't know why. I mean I don't know how I came to this. Um, I think because I wanted to talk about pornography and about mm-hmm. you know also how this is a question that well can be looked at from different perspectives mm-hmm. and there are many different perspectives on it and um, then I well it was the first 
it seems that what I, that's what I read or what I learned. Um, it was the first um, uh, porno movie that was like really a thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, people. I think even Jackie Kennedy went to see it in the mm -hmm. movies, not somewhere hidden. Um, <laughs> so uh, no, really, everyone everyone went to see this mm -hmm. movie. So it was like a huge thing. And back then, you would go to see porn in mm -hmm. uh, in a cinema, right? So um, it was. I think it was the most successful movie ever mm -hmm. made because it was. It costs like thousand probably, and it made millions. <laughs> yeah. So um, no, so this was very interesting. I think someone wrote like um, sex got out of the closet at that time because suddenly you were talking about sex, and then I watched it. I don't know if you all did, but you should because it's very <laughs> fun. I, it's super weird because I mean this back then was really hardcore porn. Mm. I mean today we're laughing. It's yeah. like cute. <laughs> um, <laughs> and no, but what is I mean, one thing. So for once, it was super important for por pornography. And then VHS came. Mm -hmm. And then hardcore porn came into the house out of the cinema. So it could be much more yeah. hardcore. So this changed a lot the industry. Um, but what is interesting about this one is that the story is, there's this woman, Linda Lovelace, um, and she has a problem. She cannot have an orgasm or not how she thinks it should be. And so she has this friend and she's kind of organizing an orgy for her. And after all of this sex, she's still like, nothing happened. And so she goes to the doctor and he's trying to find out what is happening. And then he has this curious idea to think, ah, maybe her clitoris is in her throat. And it is. <laughs> and so... And so that is how deep throating came in a way, because you have to reach this clitoris that somehow is in the throat. And I can, I don't know. I mean, what I find interesting is that they talk about the clitoris, which is not so common, I think, in this time. So that's something that is interesting. Then they talk about female pleasure. So the whole search of this is the female pleasure, not the male pleasure, which is also kind of revolutionary in a way. Um, and then, no, and then this movie was extremely important also because it was a huge, as it was so famous and, and so successful, there's a huge um, debate around it that came. Like, is pornography something that would, um, that is a submission or could it be a liberation? Because then this actress uh, at one point um, I d toured in, 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 in the US with uh, Gloria Steinem and, um, and talked about the fact that actually she was raped and that this was... She didn't agree to do that. Then a few years later, she said, the feminists made me say that. So I find it interesting to, you know, to, to talk about this topic that is a very um, complicated topic because there are very different points of view on it. And some, some women would say, well, this is my freedom and this is also my way of being powerful. So I don't know. I have no answer to that. But yeah, yeah. it's... Um one thing that kind of, I guess, keeps coming back as kind of a theme in the book is this sort of, I guess, the connection to of women's sexuality to also, obviously, the, the reproductive function. And this kind of, I guess, constant back and forth of like women's liberation reaches a certain point, but then there's something um, potentially sort of condemning uh, when a woman gets pregnant yeah. because it's sort of, you know, whether it takes her out of the job market at certain points or, you know, still up till quite recently puts her life at risk too yeah. um, and that was one of I think by the time I got to the the point where you write about the contraceptive pill which in many ways is such a sort of a a quiet revolution yeah. in a way like it, you write that it was sort of not even marketed as that to, no. to begin with yeah. and yet it did seem to be at least to me a sort of potentially a kind of a tipping point in the book where this constant dialogue between yeah. expression of sexuality and fear of getting pregnant and the consequences that could um, that could bring wasn't exactly resolved but like there was some sort of answer yeah. to it yeah i mean when when i get asked what what is the most important object in my opinion i i mean for me it's definitely that mm -hmm. because i think that i mean to to be able to have a sexuality and not fear for well, for your life in a mm -hmm. way, right? I mean, we just talked about it before. Um, 
I think that is something that really changes. I mean, I think that it really, really changed um, uh, the life of, of, of women. And then what is also interesting, I think, in the pill and how it got, uh, how mm. it, uh, it was made is, um, I didn't know that either, um, that they made the first tests for it on women from uh, Costa Rica mm. that didn't know actually what they were taking. Mm -hmm. And so they had a lot of, very bad side effects um so this made this whole like success story of mm. the pill in a way a bit a shady thing but then um no i think it's 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 so fundamental it's really like i, I don't even know how women lived before mm. in a way without having the chance either to have an abortion or um so this is the most fundamental because otherwise yeah 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 from a linguistic point of view, um, at a moment, um, because we, we mentioned Paris and France, and at a moment that you write that um, about the sort of the the French language being something, because obviously compared to English, in, in French we have the two genders, in German you have three genders. Like, you write that, um, for example, in French, you, well, I'll read exactly what you write. A language which still hesitates to speak of an écrivain, a female writer, and instead prefers to use the all-encompassing écrivain which is a male writer, but in the past had female forms of many professions um, to hand. And you mentioned the médecine, les potteresses de lettres, post-women, or the um, troubérites. The troubadour, but in, in female form. Yeah. yeah, but that was also in the Middle Ages. Uh -huh. But that's yeah. fascinating in a way as well, because we think of this kind of so-called inclusive way of speaking, this kind of changing of the language. People often on the kind of reactionary, conservative side We'll, we'll talk of it as sort of corrupting something pure. Yeah. And yet when you dig into it, you see that a lot of these forms totally, existed yeah. Yeah, before. Yeah. No, that's what's interesting is that, I mean, yeah, probably we don't go back enough when we think about what has mm. always been. No? Mm -hmm. um, because if we go really far back, then we realize that, well, many things that we think today mm. are like so new. Yeah. They had existed and they were totally normal to some people for a long time. And yeah, this is, uh, I found that super interesting. And that was also in the Middle Ages. So mm. it was kind of a sunny time. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on talking about this book for, for hours, but I couldn't leave it without talking about the presence of books within your book as well. Because there, throughout, the, throughout the history, there's, um, there, there's, there's certain objects which are, um, sort of s of symbolic importance. So, for example, the the, the Brontes uh, sort of miniature books that they made when they were children, which are sort of seem to um, let's say not that we're keeping score, but come down on the side of kind of emancipation in some way. Mm -hmm. And yet there are others which, for example, the um, the title page of the the Hammer of Witches, which um, I mean you mentioned earlier, the you know the witch trials came a little bit after the Middle Ages, and in fact it was printing and sort of dis yeah. dissemination of of, of of works and of literacy which in fact um, encouraged this so it was interesting to see like books as a kind of double-edged sword in the story yeah but with this the the malleus maleficarum how it's called it's super interesting that that actually uh, it was the invention mm -hmm. of the printed press that um well that made this such a huge thing in mm -hmm. all of europe and people really went crazy there were even women that would, um, how do you say, um, um, well, go themselves to trial and say, I'm a witch. And then they would say, are you sleeping with Saturn? Yes, yes, I am. Mm -hmm. Are you eating children? Yes, yes, I am. And you're like, what, what's going on? Because it, I mean, it, it got in people's hair. And I think it was kind of a, a hysterie collective. Mm -hmm. There was something, and this was connected to this technical progress, which is something... I mean, it's interesting because it's always the same. Technical progress has something very positive mm. and it has something very negative as it has today. So um, it's interesting also to see that in the past because I think we tend to al also mm. forget this in a way. Yeah. So yeah, for women, this was a very bad thing, mm -hmm. actually. Uh, and, and before before I finish, um, you said earlier, and I, this doesn't surprise me at all, um, that people come up to you and think, oh, you should have included yeah. this. Is there, has there been any from all of the events you've done, all the ways you've talked about the book, where you, you did think, actually, that one should have been in? Well, I don't know. Like yesterday, someone sent me on Instagram, I think, why didn't you put in the cigarette? I was like, why should I put in the <laughs> cigarette? Um, it's very funny. 
Um, ah, that's also a good question. I, nah, it sounds super pretentious if I say no, but actually I have to say no. Um, no, nobody mm. gave me a super cool object that I would have wanted to have in there, but... Um, no, but there, there, there should be so much more because I mean I was really frustrated when I when I finished because actually I have some that I have written mm -hmm. already that are like just lying in my computer <laughs> um, because um, no because there are so many if you start to look for it because it's such a nice way to tell mm -hmm. stories I mean to me it is um, you find so many great things that you want to tell and also you you can really see how. Because that's also something I think that we have this idea about ourselves that we are today women that are very cool and fun and bold and you know, but they have always been. Mm -hmm. So if you kind of dig into these the stories with these objects, um, you you meet so many women that you would like to be friends with because mm -hmm. they have always been so fun and bold uh -huh. and exceptional in a way. Yeah. So um, yeah, I don't know. There, there should be a next and, book. By and you said else. the um, the contraceptive pill for you was in some way the sort of the most important um, yeah. in the book. Is there any object which in there which you would like to own as a kind of, if you could own one of the objects in the book, have it on your mantelpiece, have it as a or on your desk as a sort of a <laughs> symbol uh, for you? Mm. Which one would it be? Well, on my desk, I would obviously have uh, Simone de Beauvoir, um, <laughs> also because it's convenient, it's not so big. <laughs> but um, no, I would love to have, um, it's called La Machine. Mm. But this you could, I don't know, you could have it as an art piece somewhere in your home. Um, and it's, um, it's uh, uh, how do you say that? Well, uh, I mean, it's a, it, it's a female body in a way with the uterus and all the stuff that was made um, by a woman at the end of the 18th century. And she was um, touring in France for 20 years um, to teach women that were always, you know, bringing babies into the world, but they would maybe not know exactly what they were doing or what was what. And, and she would teach them mm -hmm. like how this all looks, what yeah. is where and what they are supposed to do when. Uh, and so so she was, um, then she was called La Grosse Dame avec sa poupée, so she was made fun of. But but she was super important. And this object looks really like um, a sculpture or like a piece of uh, Louise Bourgeois. Mm -hmm. So this I would really like yeah. to have because I could say it's from Louise Bourgeois, but then it also has a cool story. <laughs> Well, one thing that occurred to me while reading was um, we've obviously this bookshop has connections to James Joyce's Ulysses. Um, and one thing we did a big project about this um, two years ago now because it was a centenary of the book. And one thing that became very clear when digging into this book is that, yes, this was a book written by a man, but that would have had no chance of existing without a whole network of, um, of women sort of bringing yeah. it. So obviously there was Sil Sylvia Beach who published it uh, with the support of Adrienne Mounier, her partner, um, who was the first person to also publish it in French. There was Jane Heap and Margaret Anderson, who published extracts from it in the US before it got uh, banned for obscenity. There was, of course, James Joyce's wife, um, Nora, who you know basically supported him um, uh, emotionally, often financially um, and intellectually throughout, uh, throughout the process. And so, uh, but I, I would sort of, I guess, it, Despite this, in a way, I would have been surprised to have found Ulysses uh, in your book, just because it's like in a, in a, in a weird idea. way, because it's quite so so iconically the production of a particular man. No, but this this story is is very well known, right? Yeah, that's actually that's a good idea. Um, uh, no, I I haven't thought about that, but but it's it's actually a very good idea because also because this idea of women. I mean, I talk a bit about it um, in relationship to Montaigne, for example, who had this young woman that he, that also it's so funny. I mean, she, she read part of Les Essais and she found it so brilliant that she wrote him a letter and then they kind of become became friends. So, I mean, you know, like very long time ago. And, and then she was the... Um, Publish. I don't know if that's the right word, but she was uh, in charge actually of the re-editions of Lizzie. Um and so the f women were very often those who, you know, who brought ideas that were maybe not their own, but um, into the world and made made it happen. I mean, that's also the idea that we have of the 
brilliant man with the woman behind him, or I don't know how the saying goes, but um, but yeah, that's something that is also very important and that we also see seem to find normal. Yeah, they were there, but who cares? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, and yeah. I'm uh, just underestimating the yeah. the contribution as well. I think. Yeah, and that it's as important. That's why, for example. Sorry, that goes on forever. But no, um, for example, I have uh, in there um, a magazine that is called Sur, which is uh, an Argentinian magazine um, by this woman, uh, Victoria Ocampo. And so I use this a bit to talk about translation because I feel like, and that's why I'm super happy that they put um, my translator on the mm. cover, right? Because translation is also something that has been very female, mm. I mean, very long ago, but, but that we also tend to find yeah it's very normal that mm. someone gives his own voice to talk with the voice of someone else in a way uh, and it's not it's mm -hmm. like extremely generous and it's uh, the only way that our ideas can travel mm. otherwise we would all be in our very little rooms with our own language and it would be very sad and boring mm. um, and so yeah we tend to underestimate um, generosity also mm. for example um, which is not something that is female yeah there are many men that are very generous and tender and all that stuff, but um, yeah. Mm. I think, well, generosity and tenderness is a very good place <laughs> to um, to leave it. We have lots of copies of Annabelle's book, um, enough for, for each of you. Uh, she'll be here signing them um, for you. Please do stick around, have a glass of wine with us, continue the conversation with Annabelle, with... Uh, each other. Um, if you you can get the book signed before you pay for it, because the tills are downstairs. But do please remember to pay for it on uh, on your way out. I know sometimes <laughs> after after a glass of wine that might uh, might slip your mind. But um, but yes. Yeah, so, but please to take a copy, get it signed by Annabelle, and then uh, pay for it on your way out. Um, all that remains for me to say is please join me in giving a big big thank you to Annabelle Hirsch. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. Production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album, Play It Gentle, is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening.